We are delighted to be joined by the awesome author, Joel Richardson. Welcome to Exposit the Word, Joel. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Ah, oh, thank you. Joel, I was recommended your book, When a Jew Rules the World, about a week ago. Just couldn't put it down. Amazing book. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, right from the very beginning, I, I actually quote Martin Luther, and it really grabs, I think, most Christians because it's actually shocking mm. uh, to read such vehement hatred expressed by such a hero of the faith oh, yeah. that uh, you realize, man, this this is probably something that I should pay attention to. Yeah, sure. Well, tell us about that letter, Joel. And how did Martin Luther get to the place theologically where he thought it was okay to have views like that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a Luther scholar, so I, you know, I've, I've read summaries of his life. But they say earlier in his ministry, he was much more positive. Um, we could probably point to others like Muhammad as parallels, <laughs> they begin um, trying to use sugar, and when sugar doesn't work, then they use vinegar. Yeah. And uh, Luther seemed to have reached a certain point in his life where he was uh, incredibly frustrated with the Jewish people, and he actually wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies. And there's a bit of important uh, historical background there. So really, from the early centuries of the church, once the church began to be dominated by Gentile leadership mm. uh, and replacement theology crept in, uh, there, was a, there was a very natural flow of thought or a line of logic where they essentially said, well, if God is permanently done with the Jews, if he is chastisement, chastising them for the rejection of Christ, then how should we treat them? Mm. Uh, because it's a pretty natural thing once you say, well, God's perpetually angry with his people, perpetually punishing them. It's pretty natural if you believe you're a servant of God to begin mistreating them. And so theologians, Christian theologians, really were debating this for hundreds of years, obviously up until Luther. And this became known as the Jewish question. How should we treat the Jews? There were some theologians that said, well, let's treat them with mercy. Perhaps some will repent. Others said, no, we should be very, very harsh. And we see Christian history punctuated with all kinds of um, mistreatment of the Jewish people, always preceded by theological ideas, ideology and theology that leads to action. Mm -hmm. um, but when Luther came along, he said, and now I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer the Jewish question. Here's how we should respond. And in the bit that I quote at the beginning of my book, he says, I mean, it's horrible. He says, mm -hmm. burn their synagogues to the ground. You know, until there's just rubble left, kick the dirt over what remains, take away their prayer shawls, drive them like screaming dogs from one city to the next, mm -hmm. let them feel the heavy hand. You know, I mean, it's really brutal, anti-Semitic, hateful um, stuff. And, and that really is the nature of much, unfortunately, of his, of his book, uh, The Jews and Their Lives. Mm. It's a really hard thing to consider, but how much of an impact do you think that had on Adolf Hitler? Well, this is the thing, and we need to be very clear here. Adolf Hitler was by no means a Christian. Mm. Um, I think he used the church initially, um, but he was always, you know, whatever you would call him, a pagan or a humanist pagan or uh, a self-worshipper. I mean, obviously, there was all kinds of uh, Germanic sort of Nor Norse um, mythology that was mixed into a lot of his stuff. But he clearly was piggybacking. He was clearly clearly playing off of the foundation that Christian theologians and especially Luther had laid. So when he came along and he offered what he called final solution, 
we need to understand that his final solution was to what he called the Jewish problem. And again, which is built upon the idea of the Jewish question. And so, yes, it was Christian theologians that did pave the way for what Hitler did. In fact, when you go to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, you go to the Holocaust Museum. When you walk in, the way the, um, the display is arranged, the first display that you see is the statement, which essentially says that the Holocaust happened as a result of Christian theologians mm. and Christian theology. And, you know, again, Christians often will uh, recoil at such claims and, and oftentimes even try to fight against that. Um, but I think it is important that we as Christians take the time to listen and understand how Jews perceive their own history, their own tragic history, mm. uh, before we jump into trying to defend ourselves and recognize that they, they're very intimately aware um, of how these ideas have led to uh, their mistreatment down through history, including the Holocaust. Yeah. We're only on page one of the book. And before we get into the detail of your book, tell us how you became a Christian. And I'd also love to hear how eschatology and the Middle East become, you know, of real interest to you. So I was raised nominally Catholic. Yeah. Um, I was from uh, the original England. Uh, here we call it New England. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I was, I was from, uh, I was raised in Boston and um, or south, south of Boston. Yeah. And again, not only Catholic, my parents got divorced when I was about 11 or 12, stopped going to church. Uh, I was a, a hedonist, uh, you know, a little uh, um, heady uh, cosmic astronaut, drug addict type of kid growing up. When I became, um, when I was 19, the Lord brought a series of crises into my life and um, a few people were witnessing to me. And I ended up, uh, long story short, I ended up in a Pentecostal tent revival meeting, mm. real uh, Southern American Southern holiness tent revival meeting, extremely foreign culture to anything I had ever experienced. And um, the preacher spoke with incredible conviction, and um, he was reading from the words of the Gospel of Matthew. The axe at the root of the tree has been laid, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance for every tree, uh, every branch that does not bear fruit will be cut off and cast into the fire. And the conviction fell on me and the Lord essentially said, your entire life is a lie. And um, I was one of these arrogant little, you know, hemp that's going to save the world. And I would argue with everybody and yeah. um, look down on all the other drug addicts, you know, and, and so forth. And I just said, yes, sir, you're right, you know. Um, these thoughts had never, never, ever been something that I'd ever considered. Mm. And I said, you're right, absolutely. And so we began a little bit of a wrestling match. And eventually after an hour or so, I just said, the Lord, my life is yours. I gave him my life. And I didn't really understand quite what that meant at the time. I just knew that it involved me repenting of my sins and, and living in obedience to him. Um, later, as I began studying the scriptures, I I studied Galatians and uh, came to understand the concept of salvation by grace through faith. And so, you know, it was a process for me, but um, I jumped in with both feet and that was uh, 1990, uh, 1991, August 20th, 1991. And uh, by the grace of God, I, I haven't looked back. Yeah, amazing. In preparation for this interview, I've been listening to a few of your interviews today. You've got to just quickly tell us about the story of when you got baptised, Joel. <laughs> because that, 
<laughs> so so when I was at this this uh, tent revival meeting, so essentially um, a buddy of mine, um, my mate, he said, <laughs> hey, I'm driving across the country. Would you like to come? And he had a little pickup truck. Um, no air conditioning. Again, this is in the heat of the summer. So we drove from Boston down through Memphis to Memphis, Tennessee. So we were we were 24 hours or so more on the road, and we were ripe. And um, so we pulled into this um, this grocery store uh, that they used to have here in the South uh, called the Piggly Wiggly, <laughs> and um, again in the suburbs of Memphis. And there was a tent revival meeting pitched in the field behind the grocery store and um, uh, apparently my, my friend wanted to visit this tent revival meeting. Again, I was kind of oblivious to that along for the ride, but I actually thought it would be a good idea to have the preacher baptize me basically just to get a free bath and to cool off. And so we found the preacher and, and asked him to baptize us. Of course, he was excited. He thought we had driven across the country just for him, um, just to hear him preach. And so he baptized us. And then, you know, we basically got roped into staying for the meetings. And um, and so that's where I say, you know, the joke was on me um, because, I, you know, I was sort of weighing the option between going into a Taco Bell bathroom and, and washing up a bit in the sink. And then I thought, well, hey, why do that? You know, we've got a full submersive kind of situation here. And yeah. so um, and for what it's worth, for those that are concerned, I did get baptized later at the church that I started going to since I was now a believer and I believe in believers baptism. So I did get baptized. And as a Catholic, that was actually the third time. So oh, I've wow. been baptized three times. You are super holy, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. When did your interest become, you know, so developed in terms of eschatology? Did you go to it? Cause I mean, it's two questions here as well, because did you go to a church that actually teaches this stuff? Because I know that's quite rare. <laughs> Unfortunately, these days it is. Now, I was going to an assembly of God um, that taught a bit about the end times, and I think I was always drawn somewhat to these things and, you know, conversations with friends. Um, but over the years, there were different speakers and all sorts of different authors mm -hmm. and teachers that I was interested in. But to be honest with you, my primary focus was shortly after coming to faith, I uh, I was in church, and there was a missionary who was working in Kazakhstan at the time, and um, he explained the concept of the 1040 window, and at the time, close to 50% of the unreached world were Muslims, and he explained that we were sending less than half of 1% of the global missionary force to the Islamic world, and yet they made up roughly half of the unreached world. and. And so he had an altar call, and I knelt at the altar, and I felt the call. I committed my life to the Islamic world. And so that was my primary focus was, was training and apologetics, uh, understanding Islam and evangelism, uh, reaching out to Muslims and building, building relational connections and this, this kind of thing. But over the years, as I was doing that throughout the 90s, a lot of it um, was done online with volunteering, email correspondence, different ministries. Um, I think my my side interest of eschatology eventually led to me taking to the time to study, interestingly enough, a lot of books written by Muslims concerning their eschatology. Yeah. What does Islam teach regarding the end times? And what I found was really fascinating 
um, what I discovered is that their entire end-time narrative, it's essentially the biblical narrative flipped on its head. It's mm-hmm. a mirror image. It's, mm-hmm. it's this anti-parallel where all of their, their good guys are essentially the biblical bad guys, and the biblical good guys become their bad guys. And so I wrote a, a book which was a popular analysis of uh, – a comparative analysis of biblical and Islamic eschatology, um, I, you know, which was uh, my first book. And you, know, you don't expect a first-time author to do very well, but it, it took off. It became a bestseller. And um, you know, as a lot of journalists were searching um, during the early – part of uh, this, this century as uh, men like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, president of Iran, w- was making all these statements concerning his belief in this end-time Messiah figure, and all these journalists were trying to figure it out. Well, my book was one of the very few works, and I did put it online for free, mm. um, that, that addressed this issue. So as people started Googling, um, my book actually was a bestseller for a couple of years, and I still have to send a small commission um, to Ahmadinejad every year just for uh, his help there. Oh, wow. Why do you think the church um, is so light in its teaching in, in, in eschatology and, and everything regarding Israel? I think what's happened over the past uh, three decades is that so in the in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you had the Jesus movement, which was really the most significant in-gathering in the American church and the Western church, you know, in general. Uh, you had so many coming to faith. Now, there were two factors there. I think there was the Holy Spirit was moving. Um, people were, well, three factors. People were aggressive in their evangelism. They were bold in their evangelism. The Holy Spirit was moving. But there was ground reality was playing out, which is to say, that just in recently Israel had been reestablished as a nation. In 67, they took Jerusalem. People were studying biblical prophecy from a dispensationalist perspective. Uh, they were reading books like Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, and they were recognizing that biblical prophecy was being fulfilled. So everyone was a dispensationalist. Um, but what happened in the latter portion of the, the 1980s, you had books such as 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988, how Lindsay himself wrote a book called The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. There was a lot of date setting, a lot of disappointment. There was also a lot of excess and goofiness within the world of uh, premillennialism. And people basically, I think they got sick of it. They overreacted. A lot of people, I would say during the 90s, really kind of put it on the shelf Um, And I would say during the early part of this century, particularly in the charismatic Pentecostal world, you have not just the charismatic Pentecostal world, but you have uh, this trending with the emergent church where people not only did they put it on the shelf, but they rejected premillennialism entirely. Mm. And unfortunately, the trending in much of the church today is preterism and uh, amillennialism and even postmillennialism, which is clearly an overreaction to many of the admitted excesses and problems um, that came out of the, this emphasis on premillennialism. And so today, there really is this strong turning away um, from the biblical emphasis on the end times. And it's very unfortunate to where some don't pay much attention to it at all, 
because again they just want to avoid the goofiness but mm-hmm. others are openly hostile and mocking toward it uh, completely which it really is a clear example of throwing away the baby with the bathwater and again the baby being the primary focus of the Bible, biblical hope, the return of Jesus, the restoration of the earth, the renovation of creation, the reestablishment of the throne of his father, David, and this type of thing. This is biblical hope. This is the blessed hope. Mm. This is the anchor of hope for our souls. And so because of this reactionary theology, this overreaction, some of it understandable, um, but nevertheless, it has, in my opinion, really got much of the church off track mm. and um, focused on anything but um, that which is that which is central to the biblical narrative. Yeah, sure. I think it can be really intimidating, can't it? Sometimes when you know, if you're sitting in the pew and you're hearing all of these different terms, a mill, post mill, pre mill, replacement theology. One of the things that I love about your book is you just lay it out in such a. It doesn't lack depth, but it's done in such a simple engaging way can you just help us out for a second and just give us some real in a nutshell and, and just define those terms for us so pre-mill post-mill a mill just 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 sort of just gives a real quick overview of what they actually mean yeah so i mean just to keep it real simple premillennialism is correct and then amillennialism and postmillennialism <laughs> are wrong <laughs> yeah. no. um, so premillennialism <laughs> Premillennialism is essentially the belief that Jesus will return prior to, previous to, this literal thousand-year period of his rule on the earth. Mm. Uh, Amillennialism, of course, means there's no millennium, but really what they believe is the millennium is spiritual, that we're in it now. Mm. And postmillennialism is a variation of amillennialism. It's just a more triumphant, um, positive version of amillennialism. It really is mitigated amillennialism, which is to say postmillennialism recognizes some of the glaring problems with amillennialism, and it tries to make up for those while still maintaining the same general framework. Mm. So for example, the Bible speaks throughout the prophets quite a lot about a period of time that's much better than this current condition, this Mm. this current age, Mm. um, the current condition of things, but yet it's not perfect. You know, the lion will lie down the lamb with the lamb. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, this type of thing. But it says those who die at 100, it will be as though they die young. So there's still death, but yet the world is far better, more peaceful than now. So it's passages like this that premillennials look to as proof that there is a millennial period. We take these things at face value and say it means what it says and says what it means. Mm. Um, so postmillennialism recognizes, yeah, our millennialism really has to just spiritualize those things away and, and kind of ignore the text for what it says. So we say that those things are real and literal, but what they teach is that the church, that we will actually be the ones as the mystical body of Christ. Rather than Jesus himself, we will be the ones that will Christianize the world. We will cause these things to take place. And through the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel will gradually win, win, win. The earth will get better, better, better until we eventually establish this Christian age. And as a premillennialist, I would just say, look, we are called to proclaim the gospel. But the reality is that vision the post-millennial vision, the kingdom now vision, that's just way more of a burden than I can handle. Mm. And it causes Christians to get on what I call the kingdom now hamster wheel, which is you're just working and working and working like a hamster, you know, going around on that wheel, Mm. um, going nowhere, spending a lot of energy. 
And it's so much more comforting to recognize that he's coming back and he's doing the heavy lifting. He is going to conquer the world. He is going to establish his kingdom on the planet. And until then, we are called to work uh, on one heart at a time, sharing the gospel with one person at a time. The gospel is primarily uh, from the inside out. Mm. And then he comes back and he does the heavy lifting. But that burden uh, of, of conquering the world for Jesus, that's that's more than we can handle. Mm. And so this is one of the one of the many reasons why I love premillennialism, not simply because it's emotionally appealing, but again, because I do believe that it is absolutely uh, what the Bible teaches. Yeah, so good. And what about replacement theology? So replacement theology is essentially the idea that crept in in the early church, that the church is the new and the true Israel, that the events that happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, that this was evidence of God's permanent uh, judgment and rejection of Israel as a corporate people, whereas Paul the Apostle in Romans 11 makes it very clear that the chastisements of 70 AD, yes, they were absolutely God, um, but the chastisements were temporary. They were partial and they were temporary, and they were unto Israel's ultimate restoration. And so we as the church, we are um, we're just as equally important. We're just as valuable. However, we have to acknowledge that from a biblical narrative, we really are a secondary narrative. Mm-hmm. We were always there. We were always part of the story, but we were not prominent until of course the New Testament the doors have been flung wide open and we have been grafted in to this to this narrative to this story of redemption but God still has an ongoing calling and election on his people Israel and when all is said and done as Paul the Apostle says all Israel will be saved mm-hmm. and that will happen of course at the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and so that is the time when God's promises his covenant promises will ultimately be vindicated um, according to uh, you know the words that he used when he promised that all Israel would be saved and Again, that doesn't mean that every Jew down through history um, will be saved. Many, many, many have been and will be cut off. Mm -hmm. But there is a time when all who are remaining will corporately all be saved uh, at the time of his return. And so that's what we're standing with and believing for and looking forward to. Yeah. So much of this is rooted in the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about that, Joel. Yeah, and this this is really what it boils down to. In terms of the debate, Christians love to fight back and forth, and, and oftentimes it becomes very nasty. Mm. Um, but it, it, for me, it really just boils down to this, is, is God faithful or is he not? Because in the Abrahamic covenant, he promised to the uh, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and specifically Jacob, in other words, the children of Israel. He promised to give them the land forever. And then later he built upon those promises to King David, and he said that um, a, a king, a seed, would come forth from David, and he would rule on David's throne forever. And so you really have this this um, building up of God's promises throughout uh, throughout the biblical, throughout biblical history, throughout Israel's history, and the question really boils down to: Is God going to keep His promises, or isn't He? Because you know, again, amillennialists, replacement theologians, supersessionists, whichever term you want to use, they will say, "Well, God is faithful, but He's faithful spiritually." Mm-hmm. Um, and to that, I say, "Look, you know, let's say you say to your spouse, you know, honey, you know, listen, I've, I haven't literally been faithful to you." Um, 
but I do want you to take comfort in knowing that I've always been spiritually faithful. Yeah. I mean, not literally. I mean, yeah, I did have a few affairs, but but spiritually, mystically speaking, um, I've always been yours. You know, that yeah. that doesn't work in real life. Yeah. And it's it's a shame that we try to say that uh, it works with regard to God, because essentially what replacement theology teaches is that God had a wife because the Mosaic covenant was a marriage covenant. Mm -hmm. God made a marriage covenant with his people, Israel at Mount Sinai and replacement theology essentially teaches that God permanently divorced his wife and he got himself a new younger model. Mm -hmm. And that's the church. We're Mm -hmm. the pristine new bride type of thing. Um, And it really does paint it. we, We are representing God to the world really as you know that middle-aged man who divorces his old wife and gets himself a new wife yeah. um you know the, the the man that most people you know popularly love to hate mm. but yet that's how we're representing god to the world and that's not the god of the scriptures yeah. the god of the bible married a woman who was unfaithful yeah. let's be very clear israel yeah. has been unfaithful but despite her unfaithfulness Ezekiel 16, Isaiah 1, the whole book of Hosea, despite their unfaithfulness, he himself is faithful. And when all is said and done, he will he will purify her, refine her, and marry her. And so we again, as children of Abraham by faith, as the New Testament says, we are part of that corporate redeemed people. Mm. Uh, we're part of that corporate bride. There's not two weddings. There's not two brides. There's one bride and one wedding. Mm. And we are part of that um, that unified one new man, that redeemed people, Israel uh, and the church together. Yeah, You've spent a lot of time studying biblical prophecy, Joel. How does the prophecy that we see in Scripture differ from the prophecy that we see in much of the charismatic church today? Yeah, so I mean, much of the charismatic church today, um, uh, you know, for what it's worth, of which I'm part of, um, has, it was really birthed out of um, Kansas City and the Vineyard Movement and uh, a couple other movements as well. But, you know, it was an emphasis on personal prophecy, Um, you know, prophesying one to another, uh, encouraging words or perhaps directional words and this type of thing. And I call this lowercase p. Mm. Um, I believe the Lord does speak through believers to encourage one another. Um, Unfortunately, that world admittedly is can be awfully messy. I think there's a reason why Paul said do not despise prophetic utterances because there's something inherently despisable uh, about them <laughs> yeah. he says look don't don't again don't throw the baby out with the bath water the lord does speak uh, through his people but that's very different than biblical prophecy the sure objective unchanging word of the biblical prophets capital p prophecy speaking to world events speaking to the return of jesus um, predictive future events and unfortunately much of the charismatic world is enamored with personal prophecy but has largely forgotten biblical prophecy and people claim to prophesy they claim to function in the office of a prophet but yet they don't even understand the basic prophetic narrative of the scriptures and that really is in my opinion a big part of the problem in the charismatic church and it's so essential that uh, the charismatic church recovers uh, again the premillennial story of redemption because as the scriptures say the spirit of prophecy it is what is it it's the testimony of jesus it's Mm. the story of jesus Mm. and that is the foundation for anybody who wants to prophesy 
uh, again, in the charismatic Pentecostal sense, they need to first have a proper biblical foundation. And this really is, it's a, it's a non-negotiable, it's, it's, you would think, oh, well, this is just common sense, but unfortunately, it really is a um, endemic problem yeah. um, in, in that part of, the, part of the body of Christ. Yeah, sure. What can we learn from the history of how Israel's been thought of, and where is the momentum heading? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I'm doing my best to uh, foment a revolution, an awakening. You know, you had you had um, during the 1800s, you had the Plymouth Brethren movement um, out of Ireland and the UK. You know, just some amazing, amazing men and authors and teachers and preachers um, writing some of the most sublime. I mean, just like incredible works. Uh, during that period, with a strong emphasis on, uh, you know, premillennialism, um, and many of them, like Anglicans, um, uh, Anglican vicars, and so forth, are just statesmen that are unparalleled today. Okay, um, I, I want to see a revival of that. I want to see voices raised up. I want to see books written that that celebrate the, the biblical narrative. Unfortunately, many of the millennials and those younger, the, the trending is. Um, toward you know folks like N.T. Wright, you know these gin-sipping, eloquent, uh, very humble, well-spoken, extremely intelligent um, men. You know you, you get you get your average young, uh, you know, twenty-three-year-old kid who's going to seminary, mm-hmm. and and he looks at these you know Southern American Pentecostal or Baptist preachers, and they're talking about God and Israel and this that, and you know they're not very. Um, you know, they're very uh, colloquial, you know, uh, mm-hmm. kind of folksy. And then you've got folks like N.T. Wright. And unfortunately, with the younger crowd, um, form and fashion it very much determines who who their heroes are. And they're really gravitating toward men like N.T. Wright or Stephen Sizer or these type of folks that are often very anti-Israel. Of course, Stephen Sizer being far worse mm-hmm. uh, than N.T. Wright. And so among the young younger generation, I see a real trending in that, that direction. And so, again, I'm doing my best to um, steer people, again, more toward uh, the biblical narrative, which is, is actually quite easy to understand. Mm-hmm. When it's laid out um, and it's explained, it's actually a very simple narrative. It's a simple mm-hmm. story. It's a very extremely emotionally appealing story, uh, a story of hope and uh, future hope. And so um, because I believe in it, I believe in the product I believe that the trending will move in the other direction. But I'd say over the past 15 years, um, it really has been trending more toward the, the uh, again, N.T. Wright, Stephen Sizer direction. Yeah. We know this is all heading towards Jacob's trouble. Tell us what that looks like. So the concept of Jacob's trouble, um, it really begins, everything begins in Torah. It begins in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. We're in Deuteronomy 32. Moses sings a prophetic song, and he sings to Israel concerning her idolatry. And he says, in the days ahead, you're going to turn to all types of idols. And then he says, but when, um, as a result of all of this idolatry, I'm going to bring all of this tribulations upon you. And he says, and when uh, you have come to the end of your strength, when you've come to the end of your strength, then the Lord says, I will say, where are your idols now? Where are your idols now? Behold, I am he. 
you know, not the idols. I am he. And he says, I am he who brings death, and I'm also he who brings life. I am he who wounds, but I'm also he who heals, mm. and there is none beside me. Mm. And so that becomes the, con- the foundational passage for the concept of Jacob's trouble later. Uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, he talks about the time of Jacob's trouble. He says, look, you know, can men give birth? And today people will go, well, uh, but the answer is no, men cannot give birth. And he says, well, if that's the case, then why do I see all these strong men with their faces pale, with their hands on their stomachs as if they're giving birth? Mm -hmm. And he says, that day is great. It's great. It's terrible. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. So he's talking about this future time of breaking bringing Israel to the end of her strength. Then Gabriel, the angel in the book of Daniel 12, talks about it. He says, at that time, there will be a time of tribulation such as has never been since there was a nation until that time. But everyone of your people, Daniel, whose names have been written in the book of life, they will uh, rise up out of the earth and shout for joy at that time. And then Jesus, of course, uh, brings the you know the culminating statement Matthew 24 Luke 21 he says the same thing at that time there'll be this great tribulation so that's where we get the term great tribulation but again when you follow the scripture trail backwards it's Jeremiah that t- calls it the time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress and yes this is a time that is uh, primarily focused on Israel but later in Revelation chapter 12 we see that the dragon Satan he goes after the woman that's Israel, that's Jerusalem, that's the the the, uh, the people of Israel, but he also goes after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel, it says, are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus at the end of chapter 12, so that's of course Christians, we're referred to in that, that metaphor, that picture, um, as the children of Israel, again, spiritual children of Abraham by faith, and so the time, the Great Tribulation, Jacob's Trouble, yes, it's for Christians globally. Satan is going after all of us. But its original context in the biblical story, uh, as it unfolds, it's for Israel. So, yes, it's for Israel, but it's also for, again, Christians as well. Mm. It's horrendous to, to think about what that actually plays out to look like. I mean, we're talking about something that's going to be the worst that Israel has ever known, right? So you, you, you consider the Holocaust, we're talking about worse than that numbers-wise and... and you know, that's what it seems to say. It's as worse than anything that's ever happened. And so the, the immediate logical question is, so you're saying worse than the Holocaust, more than 6 million. And that seems to be the case. Now, I think it's important that we don't quantify Jacob's trouble. We don't quantify the tribulation. Um, you know, is it simply saying that it's going to be global? Um, it's going to be um, a tribulation that will be so widespread globally that's why it will be worse or do, do we have to say that must mean technically that there will be more than six million jews you know like how do we do that and i think we need to be very careful mm. zechariah 13 does say two-thirds of the people in the land will will die um that seems to be pretty clear again we need to be so careful because we're dealing with uh, you know these aren't just pawns in a in a chess match they're not just stored these, these are real lives these yeah, are real people families, and so yeah. we need to be very careful but yeah. as christians we need to be prepared for the worst and we need to see ourselves in the midst of that story not just as something that's going to happen over there um, but the reality is we don't know exactly how it's going to pan out what it's going to look like i'm sure it'll be quite different in the uk versus papua new guinea yeah. um or you know you know all over the world it's going to be different 
Um, down in Texas, you know, you're going to have guys with their shotguns saying, you know, I ain't going to take no mark of the beast. Um, and you know, in, in, in the urban core, it's going to be very different than it will be out in the country and this type of thing. But we need to be prepared because the scriptures do, do use the language of a global tribulation while acknowledging that contextually and geographically there, there, there is a, uh, a focus of this tribulation, which is Jerusalem. That is the epicenter mm-hmm. of Satan's rage, Jerusalem, Israel, and, and the Middle East. Um, so there's a, there's a tension, there's a, there's a balance there that we need to uh, be willing to embrace. Yeah, sure. You, you touched on what that's going to look like for Gentile believers. And I know Matthew 25 is a passage of scripture that a lot of Christians apply to themselves in their context today. But what is the actual biblical context yeah, you know, I, I really do believe that Corey Ten Boom and the Ten Boom family uh, were in many ways, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Corey Ten Boom, they really were these prophetic prototypes, I think, for the last days, believers. It's so common for Christians today to look back at the German church and say, man, they failed miserably and, yeah. and kind of judge them. Um, but the reality is, you know, we have far more evidence, if we're, if we're honest, we have far more evidence of something coming in our day than the church had, let's say, you know, in the 1930s, early 1930s, you have, in the lead up to World War II in Germany, you know, you had a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, but most, much of what was being said was being said behind closed doors. Um, Today, the anti-Semitism is being shouted from the rooftops, from leaders of states, multiple people throughout the earth, entire religions spewing uh, anti-Semitic uh, hatred uh, within the church. Um, you know, American universities, universities uh, throughout the Western world, throughout Europe, uh, anti-Semitism is exploding. We see in the scriptures that it's coming. Mm-hmm. We have recent history in terms of what civilized mankind is capable of you know as an example um and yet we're doing nothing you know we have all of the evidence that something is coming again and yet really we're doing nothing and so it really is important to look to the lives of people like bonhoeffer he was he was a prophetic forerunner he saw things before the rest of the church did and he began preparing for it and at first i'm sure they called him an alarmist um but he he was ahead of the curve, and likewise the Ten Boom family they they risked their lives to give shelter to those that were um, trying to hide. And I believe that whether it looks exactly like the Ten Boom family, I think we tend to imagine in our heads, you know, hiding Jews under the table or under the floorboards or this type of thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe there will be some of that. Um, but I, I think it's the spirit that they walked in that we as Christians need to prepare our hearts to be willing to lay down our lives. But for those who are not necessarily part of our tribe, yeah. in fact, let me add to this, you know, in Yad Vashem, one of the things that I always spend some time when I'm there mm-hmm. is there's a display uh, focusing on the righteous Gentiles. So these were various non-Jews that, again, like the Ten Booms, that were protecting and giving shelter to Jewish people and families during this time. And the ones that I always focus on are there are several that were Muslim families they were Bosnians and Turks um, and you know Eastern Europeans that risked their lives and and the lives of their own families to protect Jewish people and I always look at that and I say you know if these Muslims without the Holy Spirit um, just because of that uh, you know they're creating the image of God they had the conviction mm. to do something so heroic um, 
you know, how am I responding right now, for example, during the, um, you know, the past several years with the Syrian refugee mm. crisis? Do I just view them as invaders and, you know, at this time, or do I see them as people individually? And, and, and to what degree am I willing to lay down my life um, for those that are, again, not part of my tribe, whether it be Jews during the time of Jacob's trouble or Iranians fleeing the Iranian regime, this type of thing, or am I just going to suspect that they're all just a bunch of marauding colonizers and this type of thing? And so it really is important, I think, for us to to check our hearts and to see the degree to which we, we practice self-preservation um, versus embracing the cross and laying it down for others. Yeah, so good. You've made the case for the Antichrist to come out of Islam. Tell us about that, Joel. So essentially, when someone first hears that, they say, okay, well, you're just another Antichrist pointer pointing at the boogeyman of the day, and, and everyone's done this throughout history. And that's true that people have done that. But really, if you really want to understand what I'm doing, all I'm doing is articulating a biblically contextualized eschatology, mm. which is to say it's a vision of the last days, which takes into consideration the context of the scriptures. The Bible is, and it always has been, a thoroughly Jerusalem and Israel-centric book. That's where most of the story unfolds, and that's where it culminates. That's where Jesus returns. And so when you begin just by understanding that basic concept, you know, I always tell my uh, my friends, you know, in America, I say, look, the Bible is not about us. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we're infamous for having a very American-centered sort of worldview, um, but 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 the, God's worldview does not is not our worldview. You know, it's a very Israel-centric book. So once you understand that, then you look at the prophets. They name names. They name tribes, peoples, regions, um, and they tell us who they are. And the the armies, the kingdoms, the hordes of the Antichrist. Mm -hmm are always Middle Eastern, North African nations that surround Israel. That is the overwhelming um, emphasis of the biblical prophets. And so if that's the case, I believe that we should emphasize that which the Bible emphasizes, because the Bible never names a European uh, nation as being part of the Antichrist coalition. It never explicitly named it. Now, is that to say that Europe won't be involved? Of course not. Mm -hmm. But where the Bible is silent, we need to be very careful, and we need to simply pay attention to what the Scriptures actually state explicitly. It talks about the nations that surround Israel gathering together and invading the land of Israel under the leadership of the Antichrist, and because that's what the Bible consistently, repeatedly teaches in a very literal, straightforward way, that's what I believe, and that's what I teach as well. Mm. It's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Because we were talking earlier on about how light we are in terms of teaching Christians eschatology. Yet Muslims, uh, it's foundational. You know, you speak to a Muslim about eschatology, they're going to have a, a really robust idea, right, in terms of what end times looks like. Tell us a little bit about that, Joel. Yeah, and you know, for what it's worth, if anyone listening is a bit of an evangelist, this is a wonderful conversation bridge. Um, you're out on the street and you see a Muslim, you know, assalamu alaikum, hey, what's your name? And then you start just asking them, hey, let me ask you a question. You know, I was just reading something, I heard something on the radio. What do you believe about, um, personally, you know, are you Sunni, Shia? What do you believe about Imam al-Mahdi? You start asking them about some of their end-time beliefs. What do you believe about, and they love, I mean, at least in my experience, you know, Muslims are as different as people are different, obviously, mm, yeah. but they... For the most part, they love talking about this stuff, mm. and it's a great way to spark up a conversation. And so they have, yeah, as you said, this very robust 
uh, eschatology and expectation. And in fact, I would say in the same way that end time apocalyptic expectation was huge in the Christian church during the 1980s, um, I would say it's equally far more vibrant in the Muslim world right now, whereas the church has kind of just forgotten about it. Now, granted, things like the coronavirus and all of these global riots, or at least uh, especially here in the United States, I mean, you know, yeah. that's causing people to ask questions for sure. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're starting to think about these things again. Uh, but Muslims, they've, they've really been uh, really expectant with regard to the end times. In fact, when ISIS burst forth onto the scene in June of 2014, uh, within a year or so, they had recruited, and you think about this, they had recruited close to 30,000 kids from all over the world. And one of the primary driving factors were that, was that they believed that this was the fulfillment of Islamic prophecy. You know, we, we, we can't get 3,000 kids from all of the missionaries throughout the UK and the United States to become missionaries to the Middle East. We can't get 3,000. They got 30,000 kids that were willing to rip their passports up, cross, you know, national lines and smuggle their way into Syria so they could fight and join this last day's jihad. And many of them lost their lives doing that. Meanwhile, you know, in our churches, we're... we're putting up rock climbing walls and doing anything we can to entertain the kids. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wonder if maybe we ought to get back to, you know, preaching um, biblical, <laughs> biblical discipleship, mm-hmm. martyrdom, the value that the Bible places on all these things, laying down our lives and, and the emphasis on the return of Jesus, because there's definitely something in the human heart that's drawn toward it. And uh, it makes for a fascinating uh, study for sure. Yeah. My jaw dropped as I read the chapter, as you you explained what their eschatology involves in terms of the trees calling out as you unpack that. Can you can you just sort of briefly summarize what that looks like and what what's being taught? Sure. Well, there, obviously, there's going to be a variety of belief, just like there is in the Christian church. Yeah. But um, the, the, the general story is this. In the last days, there's this Messiah figure, um, this Muslim Messiah figure that comes back known as the Mahdi. The Sunnis, would, we can just say in English, you can say Mahdi, um, or I guess American English say Mahdi. I, but, uh, you know, <laughs> Mahdi in, in Arabic. Um, and he's this Messiah figure. Now, the Shia will call him the 12th Imam. Um, so he's a little bit different. Obviously, the Shia think he's a Shia. The Sunnis think he's a Sunni. There's some differences there. Um, but they believe he's a reviver. He will revive Islam. He'll cause Islam to become supreme throughout the world. He'll cause a massive conversion um, to, to Islam. And eventually, he'll lead a, uh, a coalition of nations, and he'll defeat Israel. Mm. He'll establish the seat of his revived caliphate um, from from the Temple Mount, from Jerusalem specifically. He'll rule the world from Jerusalem. And um, they also believe that Jesus will come back as a Muslim. Um, he'll come back as an assistant to the Mehdi, that he will convince the Christians of the world that we've had it wrong all along. Our Bible has been corrupted. He never claimed to be the Son of God. He never claimed to be God incarnate. He never died on a cross. Uh, he was, in fact, a monotheist, a Muslim, of which all the prophets were Muslims. And, and we're, we're just deceived, and we need to convert to Islam. We need to follow the Mehdi. And then, as you made reference to one of the... Um, really dangerous traditions, prophecies, the hadith, uh, is called the hadith of the Garkhard tree, which says that in the last days, the, the day of resurrection would not come until the Muslims fight against the Jews. 
and uh, the Jews are hiding themselves behind a tree or a rock, and then the tree of the rock will cry out and say, oh, faithful Muslim, Abdullah, servant of Allah, uh, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. And so it's really easy to look at these Islamic prophecies and say, my goodness, their prophecies are setting them up to receive the Antichrist mm -hmm. as if he is their Messiah, mm -hmm. and to actually fill the prophecies of the Bible believing they're following their own prophecies, uh, many of which, you know, are you can argue that they're medieval uh, forgeries and so forth, but today they've become accepted throughout the Islamic world. Mm -hmm. And and Satan has done a very good job at cultivating a, a tradition which is preparing a quarter of the world's population um, to fulfill biblical prophecy. Now, again, I want to be clear, not all Muslims um, are radical jihadis that want to kill us all, and not all Muslims are going to fall for this. I, you know, mm -hmm. there's many, many, I know many personally, many wonderful Muslims that I consider my friends. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, is this demonically inspired tradition? Um, and, uh, you know, it's very real, and it's something that Christians do need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the same in the in America, Joel. We have a, a real ecumenical flavour uh, to church. Bearing in mind what you've just said, we see like the Church of England as an example. They, they're not only partnering with other denominations, but they're, they're also actively looking to partner uh, with, with Muslims in terms of having interfaith days, interfaith prayer days, and opening up churches for, for Muslims to come in and pray. What's your thoughts on that? Well, look, uh, you know, again... The foundation being in Torah, the Lord was very clear when he said, when you enter the land, don't enter into covenants, marriages, treaties with the peoples. Yeah. If you do, yeah. uh, it will lead you astray. It will be a, a snare unto your feet. It, it, you'll, you'll worship other gods. Yeah. And look, it's not popular today um, in this atmosphere that you just described to refer to any other religion uh, as being satanically inspired or motivated or this type of thing. Yeah. Um, and people say, no, you know, Paul, he never attacked other religions. He just trumpeted the, the, the glories of Christianity and this type of thing or of the gospel. But you have to look at you have to look at Jesus as our premier example. And in the book of Revelation, he actually refers to the throne of Zeus that was in the city of Pergamum. And he actually referred to it as the throne of Satan. So Jesus himself was not very ecumenical. You know, look, he's very understanding to those who are ignorant, mm -hmm. to those who believe. Now, Muslims believe they're worshiping the one true God, and we have to recognize that. But the reality is the God who inspired the Quran is not the God who inspired the Bible. Mm -hmm. You know, the story of Muhammad is that he was in the cave of Hira, he was fasting and praying, and this presence came over him, and it was choking him to the point where he felt like he was going to die. And it demands of him, Ikra, recite. It's the same Arabic word where we get Quran, the recitation. And he says, you know, I don't know how to recite. He, he thought this thing was telling him to give himself over to ecstatic um, uh, channeling, mm -hmm. to, to let himself become a channel for the spirit. Yeah. Because this was a common practice in Arabia during the day mm -hmm. where these, these Arabic poets would allow themselves to, to allow demons to channel through them. And they would recite Arabic poetry. And he goes, I, like, I hate those people. I don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And again, the spirit came on him, and it choked him, and it was crushing him. It demanded Ikra. The third time it happened, this is when the first words of the Quran began to pour forth from his mouth, is when he finally gave in to this. Now, 
Muhammad himself, according to Islamic history and tradition, believed that he was demon-possessed. He was suicidal for a few weeks after this. He couldn't stop trembling. He went home to his wife, Khadija, and she convinced him that he was a prophet. She convinced him, no, you're not demon-possessed. This is your call to be a prophet. You need to go with it. You need to allow it. Mm -hmm. And this is how the, the birth of, of Islam began. Now, it doesn't take the discernment of a rock to recognize that this was demonic. This was not Gabriel the angel. This was not Jibril. Yeah. This this was a demon pretending to be Gabriel. And the, the spirit that inspired the Quran is not the God of the Bible. So we need to be very clear there. Now, that said, again, many Muslims are ignorant. And, you know, we don't need to be unnecessarily hostile. But the very idea that we can have a prayer meeting as if we're praying to the same God as Muslims is apostasy. Yeah. I mean, you know, would, would, would Jesus and Moses have had a, a prayer meeting with the prophets of Baal? No. Um, you know, for what reason did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bow down yeah. um, to the gods of, of Babylon? But yet many of the leaders, not just fringe, uh, you know, very liberal church leaders, but oftentimes the heads of various denominations are are leading the way in this in this apostasy and it really is the spirit of this age there's a way that we can love muslims and be respectful while recognizing some of the more harsh uh, realities that i've just said it is possible to be both loving and not compromise and unfortunately the the, the, the religious pluralism is is the new religion and it's not christianity yeah so good joel you've written many books which one of your books would you recommend reading after this one when a Jew rules the world is definitely, I think, the most important. Yeah. Um, after that, I would read Mideast Beast, which is where I lay out the scriptural case for an Islamic Antichrist. It's a very systematic um, approach. And then, well, actually, you know, I've, uh, yeah, because I have written a few books. If you're interested in archaeology and that type of thing, I did write a book um, last year. Um, called Mount Sinai in Arabia. Yeah. Um, very unrelated to what we've been talking about, but it is absolutely fascinating. Um, and it's a small book, easy to read. And I also wrote a book that I think is really relevant right now called The Mystery of Catastrophe mm -hmm. um, in light of all that's been going on that we've been going through. And that really is understanding God's redemptive purposes for the catastrophes, the global catastrophes of the last days. And uh, that's a book I think that it's a foundational Christianity 101. Let's get prepared for what's coming. Um, but then, you know, a few other books on eschatology. Mystery Babylon is an exposition of Revelation 17 and 18. Um, and Islamic Antichrist is the comparative analysis of biblical and Islamic eschatology. That was my first book. Um, I actually wrote that in 2004. So it's actually 16 years old, but still very relevant. Oh, so cool. Joel, I'm actually going to read all of your books. So once I've read another one, we're going to have to get you back on here again and have another conversation. Fantastic. And hey, for what it's worth, I just finished, I'm just finishing editing another book, which is intended to be kind of a sequel uh, right, to yeah. When a Jew Rules and it's called Sinai to Zion the untold story of the triumphant return of Jesus and I I honestly think um, it's a heavy book it's a it's a meaty book but mm -hmm. I actually think it may end up being the most important um, and the best book that I've written so far I'm really excited about it awesome and when do you think that would be out Joel it'll be out in hardcover um, by July mm -hmm. um, but the Kindle version should be out uh, probably in a few weeks 
Fantastic. Okay, awesome. We'll look out for that. So, Joel, in case anybody wants to get in touch with you, um, I know you're on social media and you've got a website as well. Tell us about that. I'm at joelstrumpet.com is my website. I've got a YouTube channel. I've been doing a lot of regular teaching on just type in Joel, Joel Richardson on YouTube. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter causing trouble and, <laughs> and for what it's worth, I'll, I'll throw this out there as well. All of my books are free as PDF files on my website. So if you go to joelstrumpet.com, you go to free resources and a lot of the books are also available in other languages. Wow. Um, some of, some of them, I give other foreign translators complete rights. So some of them sell them, others give me the copy and I put it online. But there's a lot of free resources there. So, you know, if you don't mind reading a PDF file, that that is, they're all free. That's amazing. I'll put all of those links in the description below, Joel. Thanks again for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Hey, absolutely. Thanks for having me and I look forward to chatting, chatting with you again some other time.